We knew we wanted to solve a problem in the integration space for software companies. We didn't know the right problem-solution fit. Because integration is just a means to an end. In and of itself, it's nothing, right? It's plumbing. But the user experience and the personas of the users that are going to be engaged is, I think, a critical success factor for every software company in today's world because it's really easy to connect to an API. Integration is hard. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, we sit down with Mark Genie, the founder and CEO of Cloud Elements. We start with a brief discussion of Mark's early career, including a dot-com era IPO of an early enterprise software company and the roles that provided the inspiration for starting Cloud Elements. Since Cloud Elements enables applications to easily integrate with the enormous ecosystem of applications and APIs, we focus the vast majority of the conversation on integrations. We cover the whys and hows of offering deep pre-built integrations for enterprise software applications. This includes how to think about integration field mapping, transformation, eventing, versioning, testing, security, compliance, webhooks, and beyond. We conclude the conversation with a discussion of the go-to-market lessons that Mark has learned as they've rolled out their products to developers, app vendors, and finally, enterprises. All right, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Grant, great to uh, be here today. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Maybe let's just jump right in and get a quick overview of your background. Sure, yeah. So I've been uh, in the uh, software industry for uh, far too many years, but really have always been in the enterprise software space. I started as a, as a software developer building applications and uh, have, like I said, stayed in the enterprise software world ever since. I've had roles in engineering, product management, which I'd say are some of the areas I've really enjoyed best over time, uh, sales, professional services, customer support, you know, all those different roles at a variety of companies. Uh, you know, IBM, Oracle, was uh, had a really good run at Oracle during a good portion of the uh, 90s when they were growing super rapidly. I actually left with some other Oracle executives, and um, we, we started a company called Tenfold, which we ended up taking public, and that was a fantastic run and really my first experience uh, outside of a big corporation like an IBM and an Oracle, and uh, got the bug for startups ever since. So now uh, Cloud Elements is actually my, uh, my third startup. Amazing. How long ago did you start Cloud Elements? We founded the company um, about seven years ago, but the first couple years, uh, two and a half, were 
really, we knew we wanted to solve a problem in the integration space for software companies. We didn't know the right problem solution fit. So we actually spent the first couple of years uh, self-funding the company, doing consulting, working in that API integration space for companies. And then we built out our product and launched our first version of our product in the beginning of 2015. All right, cool. I want to dive more into cloud elements in a minute, but I wanted to kind of dig around in your background a little bit because it sounds pretty interesting. So you took a company public in, like, was that in the kind of the internet yeah, that was in the uh, the bubble. We were, you know, the uh, the late '90s, early 2000s. You know, what made us unique? It was uh, actually enterprise software. A uh, number of uh, Oracle execs left and really uh, built a company that was taking what ERP was doing, kind of on a horizontal basis, and applying that to vertical markets, like in the financial services, on the trading side, and utilities and insurance. And really taking for the first time these bigger ERP kind of concepts, but applying it to uh, to vertical market solutions. So we had, unlike a lot of things in the dot-com bubble, we had real revenues, uh, grew that to a few hundred million in revenue and uh, real profits and other things like that as we scaled the company. And you weren't selling to other technology companies? No, we were uh, selling to real, yeah, real businesses like the Goldman Sachs of the world and the Chases and you know United Insurance and other firms like that that were real businesses and really looking to uh, you know transform their operations uh, using more you know internet ready um, based uh, software. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we were actually quite early in that helping enterprises take and apply web-based services and applications to solving problems that were outside of their finance departments or real operational problems in their uh, their businesses. Yeah, so first of all, you know, selling to actual companies at that point was probably fairly rare. I think that's a lot of the reason that some of these companies went under is because their customers were all other startups and... Exactly, there's all this uh, fictitious uh, other startups or there was... Right, a huge run of telecommunication companies that were sprouting up, you know, everywhere that were going out of business uh, left and right as well. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you had real companies paying you real revenue, then yeah, sure. Is that business still around? No, uh, tenfold essentially uh, no longer standalone operational. Um, the various parts got folded into uh, to other businesses and uh, other software companies over time. So as you can imagine, as we built out a vertical catalog, the interest in that vertical catalog became by a lot of different companies that were, you know, like the Infors of the World or whatever, that were going after particular uh, vertical segments. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it ended up uh, spawning out about five different types of companies and technologies. Oh, that makes sense. You know, because realistically, each vertical becomes so specific and the buyers become so specific. I mean, I think you see this and, you know, there's some like there's some really big companies that are built on taking a, a vertical approach. Yeah, no, you look at some of those markets like policy management systems for insurance companies. That's an entire business in and of itself, right? That's a big market and a big set of uh, companies. You know, buy-side trading systems and things like that are big businesses in and of themselves. And so, 
you know, big part of the lessons I learned through that company was the importance of having a good platform that can be, you know, applied to various use cases, right? And so essentially what, what Tenfold did was build a really very sophisticated platform to make it easier to build any type of uh, application, and that got applied to building vertical market applications with our, you know, with our go-to-market strategy there. Mm. It's cool. Yeah, but that was my first taste of the startup world. And after you know engaging in that and seeing how quickly you could make decisions and versus at a big company like an Oracle, you know, I just got addicted to that kind of speed, right, of, of operation that you only get in a leaner organization. And then so was Cloud Elements actually you went to another company? Yeah, then the uh, next company uh, is a company called Channel Insight. We built a essentially the largest aggregator of point of sale and inventory data for companies that sell through uh, distribution channels. So I got some exposure to distribution channels throughout my time at Oracle and Tenfold and other things like that. And it always amazed me, like these companies that are selling technology products, like whether it's you know HP or Symantec or Intel, and they sell their product out to a distributor and then they have no idea which end customers are buying that product or how much is really left in the channel after it goes out from a distributor to a reseller. And so there was a company called InfoNow in Denver that had this idea. They were involved in a number of things. I spun off one of their divisions and really focused in building this business called Channel Insight to really give businesses that sold through complex distribution channels for the first time visibility into who's buying their product and how much inventory is still out in that channel. So if I'm selling you know, millions of units in the UK, I would love to know more about, oh, how much are being sold to retailers in the UK and how much to the uh, financial services industry and how much to big companies versus small companies and things like that. So we would collect this data from thousands and thousands of resellers worldwide directly out of that reseller's CRM and or accounting systems and then clean it, aggregate it together and then sell it to the manufacturer so they could get better visibility into running their business, pay their partners more efficiently on which ones were accomplishing the goals they wanted and things like that and market development funds, pay commissions to their salespeople and manage their inventory more effectively. Oh, that's really interesting. Is any of that sort of same principles, or is there software that's sort of similarly related for like enterprise channel sales? Yeah, so it, it all is the data enabler for enterprise channel sales, right? So, you know, we would work with whether it was the Salesforce.com, so we were, you know, a App Exchange partner with them and worked in a partnership program to resell our product to uh, Salesforce customers who are trying to get better handle on sales data. Other vendors in the uh, PRM and, and channel management space as well, we would work with and really solve that last mile problem, which is get the data and aggregate. And it was really a big data play before it was called big data but uh, really aggregate that data together, provide real analytics on it now for the first time all the way through to that end customer. Okay, cool. I'm guessing some of those experiences were kind of formative in 
how you came to what you're going to do with Cloud Elements, or how did that come about? Yeah, no, absolutely. That was the uh, inspiration for Cloud Elements. So, uh, yeah, Channel Insights now part of Model N. So that was a um, that was an exit. And Vineet, who's our CTO, and I, after we uh, were looking to do our next thing, we really sat down and said, you know, what was the biggest challenge we had at Channel Insight? And we sat there and looked at each other and said, integration. And the challenge we had is that we tried integration platforms, kind of some of the state-of-the-art platforms out there like MuleSoft and others. And when we were at Channel Insight to try and solve this problem, right, because we had to connect to CRM and accounting systems, and we learned that they weren't really built for us as software developers or software companies, right? They were built for the buyers of applications and enterprises to make all the shit they bought work together, right? But weren't really about us as a provider of an application to be able to work with the applications used by our customers and partners. And so that informed our decision in in founding Cloud Elements is our core thesis is that more and more the integration responsibility was going to move from the buyer of apps to the provider of applications. And so... You know, as you describe enterprise ready, right? One of our beliefs was that to be really enterprise ready with a software is you had to take on more and more of the integration burden and responsibility away from the buyers. Or they may not buy from you, or they your product may not be as sticky, or your onboarding time may be too long if you can't work with that ecosystem of apps that that those companies are using. Yeah. And so, you know. For everyone listening, if you've if you've been enterprise ready, you know that integration is one of the core core principles that we think builds up an enterprise ready application. And so, you know, Mark, I, I'd I'd love your perspective on, you know, if you're an application vendor and you sort of agree with your your perspective or you're just hearing this perspective, what are the first steps you should be taking in order to actually you know, make the progress and be integration ready and start to have a great integration foundation and framework? There's actually, you know, I look at kind of multiple levels, right? And that that first step is to design your application to public, you know, based on APIs, right? Sounds basic, but you still see a lot of um, new application software being built with kind of the UI first and the APIs kind of a catch up later and I'll document and you know define the services underneath right so I think that first step is to really develop a good service level foundation for whatever functionality you're building even if you only expose it internally initially you've got that set of APIs that you can then make it easier to then expose out to the world right you know really making sure you're developing at that service-based, microservice-based architecture in today's world, right? But really defining what those services are, keeping them from being big monolithic services, granular, getting them well-documented in an open API framework. And then that's foundation number one that will serve you well for integrating well in the future. But I look at that as foundational because there's a problem that crops up with even some of the most biggest and successful software companies we work with is that on the other end, the consuming side of APIs, there's not enough developers in the world to consume all these you know, exponential growth of APIs that have been published, right? So you've got this incredible fragmentation of software markets. Each 
software application could have dozens to hundreds of, of individual API endpoints associated with them. And then you got this developer on the other end that their enterprise might have a hundred to thousands of applications, all, again, dealing with potentially thousands to millions of different API endpoints that they have to try to work with. So the first step is, yeah, you have to have that API, but one of the next steps we start looking at is providing in some pre-built integration experiences to own some of that within your ecosystem and let the API be more of a somewhere where I can integrate to long tail scenarios that aren't pre-packaged or other use cases like that. But at Channel Insight, those resellers that we had to connect to, unless I worked with their accounting system or their CRM system, whichever or both that I was connecting to, they just were like, okay, great, you got an API, but we're not going to spend the time to write to that. We don't care if you're going to pay us for the data you know, we're providing or not. I don't have a developer sitting around ready to do this, and I'm not going to hire a consulting firm to do it. So we offered out-of-the-box integrations to dozens of different systems so we can make those more self-service type of experiences from within our application simple and relatively easy for those common use cases we saw and let writing to our API be for those more edge cases or non-standardized or more customized type of scenarios. That's a great foundation. So hopefully as folks are thinking about actually building an enterprise like piece of software, they understand that you know architecture is important. Are there any kind of data considerations you should be making in terms of like how you structure the data? You know, I think about holistically the idea that you know, your system is likely not the final and only system of record, right? But like, you know, leaving space for other considerations. Any thoughts around that? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Designing your solution around that ecosystem, you know, we call it the application ecosystem that your application lives in, right? As a application provider, what is the context of other applications that my business right, um, coexists in and lives in, and looking at how I can help harmonize data and whether that's synchronizing back to other services, combining the data with other services, loading data, maybe, you know, up to other services or receiving it from them in, in batch or bulk, whatever it might be. But if you think in terms of, you know, that example of, uh, hey, I'm a new fintech company and I'm a B2B fintech in the payable space. Well, for sure, all your customers in the, you know, have a payable system of record, right? They've got an accounting system or something where those payables are managed out of. How do I bring together that data from that system from a user experience perspective with the data that I have in my application that they're going to use to complete that payment, and then how do I reconcile it back up to whatever accounting system, QuickBooks, NetSuite, Intact, SAP, whatever it is, that's their system of record. And so that user experience of, wow, do I need to be in the other system and the user experience to be a single pane of glass right in that accounting system where they're working? Okay, that's one you know, that may be one scenario, or do I need to make it seamless for that user to come to my 
user experience, but have all their data synchronized in real near real time from the accounting system they're using so they're comfortable coming to my user experience and being there because I can control and manage that better, right? And that that aspect of really starting from the experience that my user needs in context of which other systems and then how they want to engage and operate with those other systems is, I think, really a, a critical success factor for every software company in today's world because even the SAPs, right? SAP resells our product to connect to 175 other third-party products. Even the SAPs of the world realize that they don't exist as an island and business processes aren't completed through just one system any longer. It's very rare that a business process is is end-to-end completed through one application, right? It's completed through multiple applications in your application ecosystem or analytics. If it's not a process, like I'm analyzing something, same type of thing. It's pulled together from data that could exist in multiple sources. And so I like to start with the personas of the users because integration is just a means to an end, right? It's just a In and of itself, it's nothing, right? It's plumbing. But the user experience and the personas of the users are going to be engaged in pulling data together from other systems that I'm in my ecosystem. How can I optimize that experience for them? How can I make that be the most productive and powerful user experience, whether it's spanning across multiple systems or not, or How can I make it the most efficient transactionally if it's a more transactional type of pattern? Those are things that I need as a product owner and product manager really be considering in my in my roadmap for my my new application and my functionality. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so there's a handful of different areas here that I want to touch on. So first, I guess, is as a application vendor. How should I go about thinking about the ecosystem? Like, you know, obviously you mentioned there's financial services, has one app ecosystem, and there's different app ecosystems and analytics. And so how should I go about understanding and discovering what applications are in that ecosystem? Should I just wait for customers to tell me or, or how do how do I find that? Yeah, so there's multiple dimensions, right? So first of all, it's the what are the systems of record that are being used by the types of customers I'm targeting, right? And what do I, how do I engage with that system of record, right? So you, you start with the, hey, if I'm uh, creating a new human capital piece of software, you know, for applicant tracking or whatever it might be, right? And my customer wants to move that from tracking the applicant to onboarding the applicant. And I'm targeting large enterprises. Well, I better have Workday and Success Factors and Taleo, for example, and maybe Ultimate Software as you know, targets that I'm going to need to connect to to be able to complete that process from tracking to onboarding, right? And it's a, just one example, right? Of a, but thinking through that use case and which system of record do I need to touch and engage with, that, that's the starting point, right? Because that will become the roadblock to customer adoption over time, right? Now you can't, if you have to go get IT organization involved and it's a complex integration into, uh, let's say, success factors, you've just slowed down your sales cycle, right? Because now that human capital department has to go find a consultant or get on the IT backlog, which could be a year out or whatever it might be, right, in order to connect back 
into that system of record. So if you can take off on some of that burden, right, and that's what I talk about, that move, shift some of that burden from the buyer to you as the provider, now I can shorten that cycle. But I always like to encourage starting with those, right? But if I'm going after midsize and small and midsize companies, well, then I'm going to be looking at things like Namely and Bamboo, right, and other products like that that are used in the uh, QuickBooks, for example, that are used in the mid-market, and uh, those are going to be different targets, right? So your market segments you're going after, those system of record for the type of business you're in, right? And uh, start, set the basis and the foundation for, okay, this is what I need to start with on my integration strategy. You know, so that's the starting point, right? Then there's the complementary systems that are in your ecosystem that you tend to coexist with, Right. So if I'm a marketing automation system, right, I'm going to go take on HubSpot in the mid-market, there's probably, a, in addition to Salesforce, right, there's probably a few CRM systems that I'm going to need to work with, but there's probably a number of other marketing content systems or, you know, if I'm a lead generation system, you know, others that I'm going to work with and integrate to that are not necessarily the system of record, but the you know complementary to increasing the value of my offering in areas where I may have a gap in my product or don't plan to uh, to solve by working with as well, right? So that's that kind of next layer out of those those uh, systems of uh, of record, and then there's the other systems that uh, may be partners that I want to go to market jointly with. And if I integrate with this partner, that makes it a faster and more seamless experience to get to market together, right? So how does it fit into my business development and my partnering strategy over time and reaching this market? And that'll drive some of the, the integration plans. And then, as you also mentioned, You'll hear from those early customers, right? I, I hear over and over again from CEOs at, at software companies, it's like, hey, it's that, you know, usually the second or third question out of the mouth of a prospective customer is, do you work with blank? So as you capture that data really well, get your sellers to capture what that blank is. So you're gathering real data from your uh, sales prospects and your actual customers so you can start prioritizing your roadmap of integrations over time as well beyond those obvious systems of record. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and if your answer is always, oh, we have an API so you can just hook it up, you're, you're probably missing an opportunity, right? Yeah, you're, it's just naive to think in most cases if the Marketos of the world or the, you know, the, again, name a big software company can't, just say, hey, go right to my API is generally not always the answer. Sometimes partners will go do that, right? Not all partners will do it. You know, we, we work with some major, major financial services companies, biggest brands in the world, and uh, that have a lot of market pull. And they want to integrate their payment service. You know, this, this big financial services company wanted the their payment service. They, they were expecting every accounting vendor to essentially write to their API. But they could only get a, a few of them to do it because again, they're not that they're not interested in this big brand, but 
it takes time. It takes effort. Who has to maintain that? And those big accounting system vendors have really big roadmaps with more things than they can get to that they have to do for their own features. So you end up with this kind of chicken and egg type of scenario of, well, you know, I got my API, go right to that. And like, no, you write to our API, whatever it is. And uh, at the end of the day, the customer in many cases won't be willing to just say, oh, that's no problem. I'll go hire a consultant and write to that API or I'll get my IT team to do it. So one of the challenges with pre-built integrations is that I feel like a lot of times different companies use you know, the different applications a bit differently, right? They have different workflows or they use different fields to do different things. So if you're an application vendor, how much customization do you need to be exposed to your customers to actually configure that integration, right? Like, and are you talking about mapping fields and, you know, defining various events? And is, is that like a part of what you have to offer in order to do a, a, a pre-built integration really well? Yeah. You know, we look at, there's very, very important that you can accommodate a level of customization with a pre-built integration like you described, right? Especially when you're connecting into another, like a, a system of record of some sort, right? And whatever space you're in, 90% of the time, they're going to have custom data and custom fields, right? And so the the first area of customization has to be in accommodating custom data fields and custom data objects, right? And so we generally encourage customers who are going to uh, offer pre-built integrations to be able to have a default mapping to the objects that they're connecting to. So, you know, let's say you're connecting to the, uh, you know, marketing automation system with uh, your passing lead information back to that, right? Well, everybody is customize their contact and their lead objects. And if it goes into the CRM system, they've customized the opportunity objects with all sorts of rich data that you could never anticipate that exists. And so the the key is to be able to have a default to the default fields, a mapping, so your customer doesn't have to map street one and street two and city, state, and all those basic things, right? You can anticipate that work for them. But then have an ability to discover the custom data fields at those endpoints, and then usually present a data mapper to be able to accommodate and map the custom field uh, self-service by your customer, right? So a lot of our clients actually, as part of what our, not to make a commercial here, but that's what our platform does, right, is essentially gives a software company a full integration platform, right? Authentication, data discovery, data mapping and transformation, right? So mapping is just mapping the fields. Transformation may be, oh, I'm connecting into Zendesk and Zendesk uses ticket priority is one, two, three, but I use high, medium, low. I need to transform, you know, a simple view of, I got to transform the values when I move data back and forth between those two. So that's transformation. Eventing, which is knowing when data has changed, right? Was something created, updated, or deleted, so that should have a. I should know when that happens if I'm going to make an event-based type of uh, type of integration scenario, and then the um, uh, orchestration. So workflow. Do I need to apply some logic uh, if this then that to a different scenario and how I move the data, 
and then logging and recovery. So all those things, whether you do it yourself or you use a platform like us, you need to consider in an integration offering, right? From that authentication to that logging and recovery. And in some cases, companies build that themselves. Some cases, again, they leverage platforms to do that. But that ability then, it gives you that ability to understand that data structure, be able to map and transform it. And that's the most common type of customization. Sometimes you need to customize the workflow or the orchestration based on your client uh, making changes to their underlying system. That's not as necessary initially, especially if you're doing a mapping to each, uh, each system, but that would be another level of uh, a customization, whether it's filtering for you know, only getting the data fields that I want, whether it's applying some logic to when I do want to update or not, and some scheduling uh, associated with that. But those might be areas that have to be tailored and customized a bit as well. But our experience is the biggest areas and that just making sure the data can flow seamlessly between the systems. Yeah, it's super helpful. Okay, and, 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 and love, love that you guys are addressing some of these issues because it definitely feels like a lot to build. So another kind of question, you, you know, I was thinking, you mentioned events, but I was thinking about this because I think there's this, and I, and I get a little fuzzy on it sometimes, but it, you know, there's APIs where you can request information from, but then there's webhooks, which I think are sort of the other side, which are kind of a little more event-driven. Can you talk about like how you know, a application vendor should think about what they offer as an API versus you know, when a webhook should be available? Absolutely, yeah. Webhooks are... Um super valuable to enable your API with essentially a response, right? An automated, you know, uh, essentially near real-time response when something was created, updated, or deleted, right? And unfortunately, you know, we have our uh, state of the uh, API integration report. I shouldn't say unfortunately, we do it every year and it's a great report. But unfortunately, through that report, we discover that the amount of endpoints that support webhooks are it's around the 20% range of, of all endpoints, right? So if, uh, if you don't provide a webhook and you're in an event-based integration scenario and somebody wants to know that a new contact was added to your system, they then have to poll you and ask, have a new, has a new contact been added since such and such a date? Right, in whatever window of time. And polling's super inefficient, right? For you as the application provider, because it sounds like no, somebody hitting your endpoint, searching and saying, has something changed, has something changed, versus you just telling them when something changed, which is what a webhook does. And uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, Graham, because it's a important part of being able to move beyond just providing an API to providing APIs that can be really well consumed in synchronization scenarios, right, where I need to know when your data changed. And adding a webhook will cause overhead in your system as well because you have to provide that response back, but it's less overhead than if you're, you've got somebody polling at your system to figure out to find out when it was changed because you're essentially pushing to them and letting them know. And so 
Yeah, we feel like uh, adding webhooks and enabling your your APIs that are going to participate, your core data objects, right? So you're, you don't necessarily need your administrative APIs like your APIs that add a new user to your system and things like that. But for your core pieces of data content that are going to be consumed into that ecosystem of applications, adding webhooks to those is is really, really valuable and really enhances the power of, uh, of, of your API. Great. Yeah, and so I mean, with a webhook, you're basically allowing the, you know, the integrator, the user to provide the endpoint, and then when the event happens on your side, then you're just calling that, that endpoint for them, right? Yeah, you're just giving a response to that endpoint saying, you know, at this time, such and such, uh, usually it has a, uh, you know, an ID or whatever it might be that, you know, this data field has changed. And so now, instead of having to ask, you tell me that it changed and now I can take action accordingly as the, your customer or the, the integration activity that you're, uh, you're, you're providing. And especially with so many, uh, like we were talking about earlier, right, so many of these, if you think about a process, an end-to-end process getting completed for your customer and the piece of the process that your application fits in, it's likely the other applications that have to participate in that process will benefit greatly if you can provide them a essentially a, an HTTP call that responds that says, hey, this has changed. And now they can act accordingly in their workflows or orchestration to complete that process. Right. That's one of those areas where I appreciate your, your, your feedback on that because it's always something I've thought about and it's a little bit hard to, to figure out exactly when to use it, but I think your description is really useful. You know, one of the challenges around you know, publishing your own API or, or integrating with someone else's API and doing that hard integration is around versioning, right? So how do you manage you know, this from both perspective of like providing an API for folks to work with and versioning it correctly, as well as consuming APIs and making sure that when there is a new version that you can, you know, move to it or utilize it. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to, uh, you know, the, the aspect of versioning APIs, right? But first of all, the the best practice, right, is to have a clear versioning strategy, a version number, right? That you can pass along in the header of the API that you know represents, so it can be called right. The same API could be uh, the same URL, just by changing the version number, can be called right to the old version or the new version accordingly. So the developer doesn't have to make much in the way of a change to invoke and uh, and call that API, right? And so, and then supporting multiple versions in your documentation is important as well, right? Because if somebody implemented to version 1.2 of that object and you dramatically changed it in version 2.0, they may not be ready to consume version 2.0. So a level of just like regular software, right, is that, being able to support a level of, uh, of historical versions for some period of time to ensure that the developer can operate with minimal changes to their systems is, is important. The most well-behaved APIs are backward compatible with changes, and it's so important, right? Because when you make backward incompatible changes, whether it's from authentication mechanism or a data model structure, things like that, 
Obviously, it then requires your, your customer to have a developer on the other end or a intermediary like us to have a developer on the uh, other end to make that change to support it, right? And so, you know, we see most well-behaved applications uh, really maintaining strong backward compatibility in their API versions, which is uh, really productive. And usually it's extending the data object or the data model or things like that, adding additional fields or richness to it or additional APIs, but being compatible with the previous version. You know, we I think the area where the biggest breakage of uh, APIs tends to be around the uh, the most damaging or changing your authentication mechanism, right? We've had some leading providers, I won't mention them, but, uh, you know, with large install bases move from OAuth to OAuth 2 and everybody then has to re-authenticate and change their authentication pattern who's done an integration and things like that. You know, it's, it's areas where we shield for our customers because we do all that maintenance and we provide a level of abstraction to the APIs. So we can shield a lot of those changes that end up, uh, and that's a value proposition that, you know, that a, a platform offers right, like ours with a supported, uh, what we call elements or connectors, but by supporting and maintaining those with our own team and our own tooling and our automation, we can minimize the impact at our, um, you know, customers' applications and systems. Okay, so with versioning, the the other area that's that's always interesting is testing, right? So when you have all these different integrations, how do you make sure that you know when you update your software, how do you test against you know remote APIs? Is that something that you recommend your you know integrators do? Yeah, no, absolutely, very very critical, right? That you're testing on an ongoing basis and. Uh, especially if you're adding additional uh, connectors and adding pre-built integration scenarios for your customers, they expect those to work, right? They obviously also expect your own APIs to work. So the ability to uh, exercise an endpoint, whether you're going directly to a sandbox that you have for that service and uh, calling it on a very frequent basis, right? We tend to run nearly every... API that we uh, integrate to in terms of a nightly basis, in terms of uh, testing a successful return and and uh, payload back. And that's something you can automate um, and put into an automated process. You need the sandbox that you're testing against in order to do that, or use a mock testing service, right, that can essentially mock the uh, the endpoint to uh, validate the call as well. But yeah, things can go uh, stale and then impact your quality quickly, right? And erode that confidence in your uh, uh, in your service. Yeah, we, we do a lot of contract testing around that mock, some mock testing, right? We use contract testing in, in a form called PAC testing. So that's PAC, B-A-C-T, has been something that we've started to really implement much more uh, over the last year, but we've been pretty happy with it in terms of how both for internal services and a handful of external services. So, Yeah, it, it absolutely, uh, it's got to be part of your strategy, right? And your, your commitment is to ensure that testing level. Cool. There's a couple other areas around API management that I, that I think about. One question is around the API keys, right? And sort of management of API keys. Generally, I think about an API key as basically just a, a password generated by the server. But 
with passwords, most of the time, the server doesn't actually store the password. You just store a hashed, you know, insulted version of the password. But with API keys, I feel like most services actually just like generate an API key for you and then like keep it stored on their server. Are there best practices around that right now? If you're integrating to a service that you're getting that API key back, right? I mean, clearly the encryption of that key is critical. And then the separation of the ability to decode that encryption from where you've got it encrypted, right? And, and storing that's going to be super important as well because there's so much attention to the vulnerability associated with uh, APIs and where those can be compromised. And when you're doing integrations as well for your customers with API integrations, where that's key going to be stored, right? And generally, you're going to end up having to store it in your uh, platform if you're connecting your customer into their QuickBooks system and you're going to get that authentication token back from uh, QuickBooks. So the, the first step is to obviously, and I'm not a security expert per se, but what we do is make it a multi-factor authentication as well, right? So you know, through our platform, our customers are essentially a organization, and then they have a user, and then they have the actual token for the endpoint, right? You have to have all three of those keys present, you know, for that endpoint, let's say the authorization and OAuth2 for QuickBooks, right? We provide that back as a, as a, a key, the user um, who's accessing that, and then the organization they're accessing it from. And then combine those three together to be authorized to, uh, to access that endpoint. Cool. One other security-related question that I think about, and th- this is a bit higher level, so a little less deeply technical, is you know, it, think about it almost in context of, of like GDPR, right? And sort of the idea of, of processors and subprocessors. And so one of the challenges with the sort of API economy, or so sometimes it's called, is that it's very easy for data to go from one system into another system and then into another system and kind of, you know, and I, I kind of call this the data perimeter, right? So your data can kind of just keep going everywhere. And how do you address that? What are folks doing to, to keep tabs on their data as it goes into all these different systems? Are there any best practices in this space or in, any thoughts around that? Yeah, I guess what I can share is what we see um, enterprises and large software companies, uh, you know, kind of essentially demanding of us, right? And that is, you know, we become a essentially a subprocessor for our customers, right? And those those subprocessors have to be identified in their processor agreement, right? Which subprocessors they use and. Or do they meet the security requirements? Like, you know, for SAP, for example, one of our customers, right? We have to meet the highest level of security standards to process data on behalf of SAP. And we have to make it real clear uh, through that where that data goes and where it gets stored and where it doesn't get stored, right? You know, we've addressed that problem by, frankly, not storing any data, right? So just being a pass-through of the data. And, you know, I I think unless you have to store the data and for, you know, other than the metadata, right? We store the metadata about the transaction, how long it took, but not the payload data, right? And so 
for our own strategy, that's been able to give us the ability to participate in, you know, American Expresses and SAPs and, you know, Western unions, you know, the financial payment flows and everything else, some of the most secure, because not only of our standards as a subprocessor in terms of what we do and guaranteeing where that data is going and what's stored and not stored um, through that agreement. So the way to control that is through your clarity with your subprocessors, and then you know exactly where it's going and are in control of it. Right. And I think that addresses the first step, right? And you can talk about, you know, you're a subprocessor SAP, but one of the challenges in the integration ecosystem, right, is that from cloud elements, it's going into all these other applications. And so, you know, how does a an application vendor do they think about all the downstreams as additional subprocessors? Is that like how they list this out? No, yeah, yeah, no, good, good question. And it's, um, you know, if you really think about it, when you're accomplishing an integration scenario on behalf of your customer, it's their system, right? So it's, it's their workday system or it's their HubSpot system or their Salesforce application, right? And it's important that you're not moving the data anywhere beyond, right? If you're accomplishing an integration from your application to your customer's HubSpot application, you're just moving the data between those two, right? So you're all you have to worry about in that case is your customer has to be comfortable how you're managing the data and where you're putting that data, meaning where you're putting it back into their system and who you're giving access to. You know what I'm saying? It's not, you're never taking it, and that's part of what you have to honor. You're never taking it outside of of their domain, their systems that they're responsible for. I'm updating their instance of Workday and absolutely nothing else, right? And so that's how you... um, It's not creating, you don't have to become a, if you're doing integration for your customer, you're not becoming a a data processor per se. You know, you're just in the flow and following the security flow of their own systems that they they use to manage their business. And that data is just going back into their instance. So basically, it's under the assumption that basically every account that you're integrating into is an account that the customer who's turning on that integration controls, and so exactly that that makes total sense. That's a great answer to that question. The, and it, and it, flow, it flows under then their GDPR and their um, requirements, and and that's where you can't do anything else with that data. Then that um, they're not authorizing you to uh, to do other than just for the purpose of that uh, integration scenario. Yeah, and it, you know, just from like a a security perspective, the the one challenge that I would have there, right? If I was a CISO, would be um, okay. So you know, we have done a very intensive audit of Workday, and we you know we, we've classified them to be able to accept our most confidential data. But then there's an integration to go from Workday into you know some other you know little app that you know just extends something and they don't have the same level level of authorization to accept you know the most confidential data and so the challenge there is like i need to be able to you know train and make sure my employees aren't sort of turning on these integrations and, and pumping data into just any account that we have they have to pump it into something that like we've validated yeah right absolutely yeah and that 
yeah, that onboarding to validate what you have permission to update, right, and where, or to get, right, and just even getting the data, and let's say in a human capital scenario or something like that is super sensitive. So that permission level is critical, right? Um, and that to establish that trust initially. Yeah, right. And, and just the overall training around like, hey, look, we have this information in one application, which doesn't mean that we need it to be integrated into every other application that it can possibly integrate it into because some of that data, you know, we might want to mask that field, right? Or change something else out. So, yep. You know, I'd love to just spend a few more minutes kind of talking about less about integrations and more just about, you know, hey, how do you think about taking a product um, or a new feature to market? How do you discover what you need to be developing next as like a application vendor? How do you get your teams together? How do you you know do that whole sort of end to end problem discovery problem you know POC get it to customers' hands? So one of our core values, Grant, as a company, is uh, what we call it iterate to success, and it's really built around combining agile software development principles with the lean startup principle. And the, you know the core of lean startup, you know the core takeaway for me was that build, measure, learn loop, right? You build something based on a hypothesis you establish. You build a MVP to test it. You measure the results against your hypothesis. You learn and then you iterate and keep going from there. When we're doing new things with our product or new areas, is that actually how we started the company even was, was based on really trying to optimize we did our MVP in a month for our first integration. You know, my core hypothesis was that developers would like one place to go to do all the integrations they need. We're like, oh, what's the simplest thing we could do to test that out? We essentially built a unified API that could send messages through SendGrid and Twilio, right? Because we were finding lots of developers were doing both email messaging through SendGrid and text messaging through Twilio in their applications. And we're like, oh, well, why don't we just build a single API that they could do that all at once? And so they would save time, right? And uh, be half the time to do that integration. Then our core hypothesis is they'd rather do that all at once to do it. Well, we built that uh, in less than a month, got that out there in our initial version of our platform. And we never sold it once because, frankly, it's really easy to integrate SendGrid and Twilio, and I didn't need necessarily, even though I could save some time, The I'm not really ready to pay for saving that time because it's so minimal in terms of how much you'd save, right? But we learned through that, and then we're able to iterate our product around and say, hey, you know, as we talked to those developers and got them to try our SendGrid to Twilio unified API, we started discovering other problems through that that say, hey, I need to integrate multiple cloud storage systems or I need to integrate to multiple human capital or um, marketing automation systems or CRM systems. And those are hard because I have to transform the payloads and things like that, right? So, But it gave us the basis to iterate to a what was the real product. So we generally start every new initiative with what's the hypothesis and then that what's that MVP that I can get to to 
get started on that build, measure, learn loop as fast as possible and get the feedback on it. And then we, we usually, those MVPs are very controlled user communities and groups that we try it with in order to uh, get that feedback and validation. And then we add more and more features to it as we get that validation on the, uh, on the use case to get to a, to a real um, release. So that's the, the process we use to test and validate new ideas. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. So it's actually great to kind of dive into the, the sort of early story around cloud elements. Who were who you selling to? Like, so, you know, obviously your first unification API thing, you got some feedback on, and then you started to offer something a little bit more detailed and integrating with different sort of, you know, backends. Was that the first thing you were selling then? Is that the first thing people bought? Yeah, yeah. So the um, after we did that uh, unified API for messaging, that like I said, never never really made any money on. We discovered another problem, which was wow, a lot of these because we were talking to developers, right? And we would, you know, we essentially every developer and product manager, product managers and developer, we could talk to, right? We ended up with about a hundred of them that we would just go out and say. We had a what I call a lean research, which was five questions, which were how many integrations do you expect to do over the course of the next 12 to 24 months? Which ones do you plan to do? How long do they take on average? And you know, a few questions like that. And so as we at least got this initial test to show them, we were able to ask some of these other questions, and they're like, wow, I gotta I, I need to integrate to Google Drive, Box, and Dropbox, for example, and SharePoint down the road, and OneDrive, and other things. So we started discovering, it's like, wow, there's actually a need to have a unified way. So we, we were on the right path with the unified API, but we just had the kind of the wrong endpoints because they were too easy to do, right? And so there's a little more complexity in dealing with a handful of cloud storage services to normalize those and unify those, that's what we did next. And so we discovered that through just sharing and having an initial MVP and prototype and then being able to give us the credibility to ask some of those additional questions of what they needed to do next. And so that was actually our first real unified API that we made money on was the, we called the Cloud Storage Hub, which is still one of our you know, top selling products. And now we integrate to about 15 different cloud storage services all in a unified way of, uh, of doing that. And then getting that to market, we started discovering and saying, okay, that's interesting, but there's a lot of interest in um, building a new marketing automation application, say, right? One of the, if I'm one of the eight, I think it's 8,000 companies on the MarTech uh, you know, landscape, if I'm one of those companies building a new marketing automation system, I almost invariably have to connect to HubSpot, Eloqua, Marketo, Pardot, some of these main marketing system of record solutions. Well, and so that was then that helped us discover that type of use case. And that was a next level of integration because you had to transform the data payloads and deal with custom data, things you don't have to do necessarily when you're connecting to a, a file service. And so that gave us enough knowledge to say, okay, some of these same customers who started with this cloud storage want to connect into their marketing or CRM systems or things like that. And then that led to being able to continue to 
deal with a more complex set of integrations um, that we could handle, you know, as we continue to iterate based on feedback from the from the customer base. And so, you know, when I think about the first unified API for SendGrid and Twilio, that feels, you know, like a really any kind of developer slash product person on a consumer company or a SaaS company could be using that. Then your kind of next product felt a little bit more focused on sort of business applications. And so did you kind of realize that there were these two segments and that you weren't as interested in serving the sort of consumer-oriented companies and you wanted to focus on, on the in a B2B? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that's a, that was a learning as we came in, right? Because we didn't have a focus on B2B versus consumer. We had a focus on you know, making it easier to integrate, right? Making integration faster for the software and application provider. And so that was a learning that we started seeing like very different use cases and different endpoints that companies wanted to connect to for for that consumer oriented side. And it was um, it was it was less about connecting to the the customers' applications and more about building an app like Uber, right? Where I'm, you know, connecting to Google Maps and a payment services and messaging services and and other things like that. And so we we kind of you know, quickly pivoted to the B2B use cases exclusively because we saw a lot more complexity and therefore more value in the platform, right? Because of you have to transform the data payloads and you're dealing with more complex data structures and things like that, and the need to not only build, make it faster to build an application, but be able to connect into that ecosystem as we described, right, of our of, of what your customers are using and started seeing that being very pervasive almost across every B2B application provider having a, a need, you know, for that type of service. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Well, one of the one of the challenges of developing for you know B two B application developers, right? Because we sell to the same customer, replicated, is I, I call it cooking for chefs, right? So these are people that know how to build software, and they often want to build more software. And you know, we obviously both tackle fairly ugly problems, right? We do on-prem deployment, and you do like you know thousands of integrations. Yeah. But we still find that there's engineers that want to build it themselves, right? So I'm sure that you find the same problem. Um, how do you address that? Yeah. So now, first of all, our to acknowledge that yes, our number one competitor is coding, right? And coding it yourself. And how over time we've dealt with it is not to deal with it is to. Uh, you know, our best prospects are people who've done a couple of integrations, one or two integrations themselves to business systems, and then they almost invariably come back and and even if we had talked to them a year ago, they'll come back and be like, "Hey, this is harder than we thought." Because every developer in the world looks at an API and says, yeah, especially if it's a reasonably well-behaved RESTful endpoint, right? It's like, oh, I can write to that in a couple of days, and I, I can I can accomplish that. And it, it it's true, right? You can. It's really easy to connect to an API. Integration is hard because all of the things that are below that tip of the iceberg of just invoking a RESTful call to get or post data. Oh, what do I like? You were talking about earlier. I need to store this key now somewhere and make sure it's held securely and safely. And I need to 
refresh it. And oh, how I refresh the key for Salesforce is different than how I refresh the key for Microsoft. And so now I got to deal with that one as the next one comes up. And oh, I've got to deal with custom data. How do I do that? Where do I transform and deal with the custom data? I've got to have an inventing framework. So I have to build a polling framework because very few of these have um, webhooks. I thought they all had webhooks, but they don't, right? So you just, what we find is our best prospects have discovered the complexity by doing it. And once they've done that, you start realizing it's like, I don't want to do that for a living. I'd rather build my unique application functionality versus building and maintaining an entire integration platform and and a handful of uh, connectors, right? Because there's going to be no limit to the amount of demand that product management, sales, business development are going to have for new integrations, right? So now you're like, okay, great. This was fun at first. It's not fun now doing the third, fourth, fifth, tenth one over time. So that's how we've we've approached it, is illuminate the complexity of the problem and what needs to be done, and then let people experience that for themselves. Yeah, I totally get that. It's you know, because we face the same thing. And so it's it's funny because you know that they're gonna go into like a few months of pain or a year of pain, and you're like, I could help you now but you don't want me to and you don't really understand it or value it as much as you will in a year. So, you know, I'll wait a year and then you'll come back and you'll be very happy with what we have and you'll pay us and you'll be a great customer. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, and you just have to like you said, you just have to be willing to uh to wait till they discover more of the uh of the complexity. Yeah. It's frustrating cuz you want to help people, you know, you're like, "Oh, I can I can I can save you this pain. Yep. But hey, you know, we all have to learn for ourselves. <laughs> okay. So I know that you sort of have been selling to application vendors, but you started to get some enterprise adoption, right? And so people were using cloud elements to, yep. you know, integrate internally build applications with external systems because obviously there's a ton of internal applications that are being built at companies as well. So, you know, I think that's the next interesting step is is you're actually really getting uh, enterprise pool because you know I think realistically you know it, it's there obviously there's a lot of big companies that were using your software before like SAP but you know most of them were probably more mid market you know software enterprise software companies themselves and now you're really getting enterprise adoption can you talk a bit about you know what that felt like and and how you started to address those customer needs you know enterprises are building lots of software as well right as part of digital transformation initiatives and reengineering their businesses and they're investing massively in publishing and building APIs as well. So they were a little behind where software companies were, but not far. Like you'll take financial services companies, every single one of them, you know, in the, especially in the B2B space is exposing APIs, right? For everything from, you know, completing payments to now in Europe, it's mandatory, right? With a PSD2 for banking to, be able to you know provide third parties with the ability to get credit information or account history and things like that through API. It's mandated by the government, right? So that same problem that I talked about earlier, it's like API's table stakes for what is now an integration responsibility. And so we start seeing again, I'll take financial services, you know, all these major financial services institutions having to deal with integrating to um, their API with things like the accounting systems used by their customers or commerce systems to do 
reconciliation for payments, foreign exchange transfers, liquidity management, whatever it might be. So we actually discovered the same type of problems we were solving for software companies were existing within enterprises. Although I have to say it was... uh, you know, quite a learning experience of the additional requirements that enterprises had, right, beyond what even some of the biggest software companies had in terms of security and compliance and, and other things like that that we had to uh, to step up to. I mean, if you would have told me uh, a little over a year ago that I would have had a chief security officer on my staff, I would have said, no way, we're not big enough for, but We sure enough have a CISO now because we really, in order to meet the compliance and security requirements of these world's largest enterprises, we really needed to step up our game in that area. And not only from our compliance certifications, but how we ran our business and uh, to be in that grown-up world with uh, these massive enterprises. Yeah, and I mean, how did they start coming to you and what was that pool like yeah yeah so we um, we started getting some uh, inbound just finding through uh, shows and uh, you know just through content that we produced uh, you know some of the Western Union and Silicon Valley Bank and some others you know coming to us and just saying hey we've got this problem and with uh, integration uh, this next generation problem with our API you know, and then we start targeting it, right? So once we started seeing a pattern there uh, with some of these early customers in that space, we we really started validating that there was a uh, real demand, and then start participating in industry conferences and creating vertical content and industry content to drive more of those leads, uh, especially like I said in financial services initially, but other industries as well that will. Uh, that we'll expand to. Great. And then, you know, in terms of features, obviously you said you did some compliance pieces, you know, probably went off and got some certifications. Did you already have, you know, integrations with SSO and we're doing like a, a SAML sign-on or did you add any audit logging or any of those kind of features? Yeah, so um, audit logging we were really strong on. That was all API-based from our platform to begin with. But more sophisticated role-based access Single sign-on support, right, for identity vendors uh, it was 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 critical. I'd say the next level GDPR and uh, data sovereignty, right? So really being able to not only have data stay in Europe, but have that servers and things maintained by people in Europe, right? So really have true sovereignty of the data, right? Which was becoming a a critical item with a you know a number of our European customers, you know, being able to have our a data processors agreement right and be able to hand that to somebody, hand a compliance and you know a security white paper that described all our PCI and SOC two and ISO twenty seven zero one and you know those things right those are all great they've got those certifications but enterprises want to hear that quickly and have a way to consume that and route that around the organization of how you do those things, not that just that you do them and that there's regular reviews and it's a regular process. You know, they're they're sophisticated enough to not be like to just accept that you have a check mark that you've gotten SOC 2 compliance. They want to know what your ongoing controls and reviews and things like that are as well. And so yeah, that really led to a set of requirements that 
you know, we're we're a significant step up and in investment for our organization to uh, to be able to meet. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.